For many decades, it's been the state of Israel versus Palestinians. Now it's the state of Israel versus the Jews. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. In 2009, I saw a movie called Amrika. It was about a woman leaving her home in Palestine. I saw it too. (laughs) Yes, she was moving to America, and you probably remember this too. When the customs agent asked her occupation, she said, 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) So here we are in 2022, and it's only gotten worse. In the name of security, the government of the state of Israel has arguably increased its own insecurity. Treatment of Palestinians and their response has steadily increased in ferocity. But what our guest today, author Sylvain Sipel, brings to our attention is the focus of his new book titled The State of Israel versus the Jews. And we are speaking to him in uh, Paris or somewhere in France, correct? Yes, in Paris. Uh, In Paris, nice. Well, he digs into what's been quietly bothering many of us Jewish Americans for a long time. The diaspora across the globe is the people Israel, of which I am proud to be a part. But many of the practices of the state of Israel for quite some time have been highly dissonant with what we love and value about our Jewish heritage, our identity, our identity. Dedication to justice, to opposing racism. Uh, Monsieur Sipel writes, The oppression of Palestinians is perpetrated by Jews in an Israel of, by, and for Jews, but it is not Jewish. It is not so much news, of course, that Palestinians experience injustice, but what is the focus for today on keeping democracy alive is how it has become the state of Israel versus the Jews. Sylvain Supel, uh, Sylvain Supel, thank you so much for being with us today. And let me just tell no, thank you. people I'm, a little bit I'm of, glad. Uh, a little bit about you. Uh, author Sylvain Supel is a French Jewish journalist who has lived for years in New York, Israel, and Paris, including a senior editor for Le Monde. His socialist, Zionist, Ukrainian-Polish father fled to France in 1938 before The Nazis wiped out his entire family and almost all of their Jewish neighbors and ultimately led to the French Zionist, or he led the French Zionist labor movement. Uh, Sylvain Sipel served in the uh, IDF, no, the uh, IDF, is is that the uh, Jewish Defense Forces, the uh, JDF? Yes, yes, in the Israeli Defense Force. Yes, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, not exactly uh, a you know, sit-down uh, protest for peace group. He was in the uh, Paratroop Brigade and returned to France a committed Zionist. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And in 1969, as a student in Israel, you were taken aback by how your fellow students talked about Palestinians. So let me ask, in what ways did it remind you of the French attitude toward people in, in French-occupied Algeria, before the Algerians won their independence. In what ways were their attitudes similar? My guess, frankly, is that most 
listeners are not familiar with France and Algeria. Please explain that. Yes, I can explain. You know, as a French guy, I was 15 in 62 when Algeria became independent. So the whole war of independence of, of the Algerians against the French occupation was my political school. I started to think about politics during the, the end of that war. And every day in, in the high school where I was a pupil, I was a student, every day in the afternoon when we left uh, to, for lunch, the, the, the high school, there were fights between partisans of French Algeria and partisans of independence between left and far left and right and far right. And it was daily. And sometimes it was harsh. So there I learned the issue. I started to think about issues like what is colonialism? What is the role of France in, in that colonialism? Why are the, the, the Algerians revolt? Um, uh, why, why do they revolt, et cetera, et cetera? Mm hmm and one, you must remember that the end of Algeria is, is 62. It's only five years before the 67 war in the Middle East. Uh -huh. When I come in 69, I go to a kibbutz, and then I quit. I come to Jerusalem, and I went to the university. Then every day on campus, we had debate, many debates. And I was astonished. I was completely, you know, I was a very Zionist guy and I was astonished because my Zionism was like the, the awakening of Israel was a, pro, a progressive act after, yes. the, after the Holocaust and, and the bad camp were the Arabs. They, don't, they didn't want the Jews to have a state. Right. And then I started to discuss with many students in the campus, and I was astonished by the, the way they were speaking. You know, one would start saying, well, you don't understand the Arabs. One, I remember one day I said to a guy, uh, but are you, if you don't leave the territories, they will revolt. They, at some day, now they are crashed, they, are, they, are, they, they can't mobilize, they lost at all. But one day will come and they will revolt. No one can accept a military uh, occupation. Oh, he said, right. forget that. Really, what are you speaking about? You don't know the Arabs. You give them a piece of bread and some olives, and this is good for them. This is an ad. And, uh -huh. you know, he said, when we, we will be better than the Jordanian occupation. He didn't say occupation, presence. Mm -hmm. But he said, we will give them much more and they will be happy with us. I thought, I know that way of thinking. I uh -huh. know that from, from the Algerian war. Uh -huh. I know that the way 
the, the pro-French Algeria were speaking. You don't know the Arabs. They are dumb. They have no understanding of what is a nation, etc., etc. Mm. So you're, you're right to ask me that first question because really I started to move on the Israeli-Palestinian is- issue because I had Algeria in my mind uh-huh. as a young. And it was a shock because I... I never thought Israeli, Israel in, in, in colonial terms, right. you understand? Yes. I was, I was 20 years old. I never thought about that in, in colonial terms. I was 20. In 69, I was 22. So, and just suddenly, I was so astonished by this kind of thinking. And I saw that it was very large, a very large. When I... Uh, one more topic. Sure. When I uh, arrived at the student house, I was then already married and I, I had a kid. When we arrived at the... So it was two years after the 67 World War. Mm-hmm. When we arrived at the student campus, we had uh, a, a very little apartment there. And every day around five o'clock in the afternoon, we saw workers build, uh, in in the real estate uh, in the building, you know, building houses, working there. And when they were going back to their their buses that uh, that were taking them from the conquered territories to work there, we, we saw little kids, literally little kids. They were aged 10 to, to 15. And they were throwing stones on them. Wow. And they were screaming bloody Arabs, etc. And I couldn't, and it was the very beginning, I started to think, what is this? What kind of mentality? Why do they do that? Why do they throw stones on people that are just walking to take their bus? And the issue of racism suddenly raised that I never thought about before. Yeah, the racism, you're right. I mean, those of, it, it does come as a shock to people when we see you know, one thing yeah. we, we expect and, and then the other. I mean, I grew up in the 1950s and everybody was like, oh, yeah, America is always against colonialism, you know, yes. and, and we're for the liberation of people from their occupiers because we did that, mm-hmm. you know, to get our own independence. And then came Vietnam and, and just the, the cognitive dissonance. It just shook me up. I mean, this is what I had believed in. And again, yeah. I, I grew up in the 50s and I went to a religious school. And we were taught great pride in the state of Israel, you know, in the wake of the Holocaust. We learned that after mm-hmm. the Holocaust, as they said, as they really said this, you've probably heard this before, we were a people without land who fled to a land without people. And Israeli settlers... This was a slogan of the Zionist movement. Yes. And, and, and Israeli settlers grew oranges in the desert. Uh, did, did you change or did Israel change? What about that? Oh, I think both. I think, as I said, uh, 
I came as a Zionist, and, and very quickly, I uh, when I was in the military, I didn't see nothing. But as a civilian, I started to to see and to think. I would also, when I was uh, uh, in the military, I was 18 years old. And I, when I was 21, 22, I really started to change my mind about the, the about what I was seeing. First, to ask myself why, why I'd never thought about all what I'm seeing here. And then I, I concluded that I'm not Zionist anymore. Uh-huh. So, but I think also, you know, I, I wrote that book after a long thinking. I wrote a book in, in, uh, 15 years ago, which was called uh, World. The idea of the book was Israel is putting the Palestinian uh, inside walls. But the Israeli themselves I walled in uh-huh. in them in their mentality in the wrong way they are looking at the colonized, at the at the Arabs, etc. Et and yeah. after that my publisher asked me during years, he said, You should write a new book or to continue what you start writing in the first book, in World. And I said, I have nothing to add. I said, I, I wrote all what I had to write. It's, these are not books of, uh, you know, of daily news. It's a book who starts to understand reality, uh, a broader reality. And then someday, I, 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 so several times they asked me, Please make a new book. I said, no. I said, no. I don't see what I can add to what I've, I have already written. And I would say in, in 2017, 18, I started slowly, slowly to change my mind. And, to, and the reason was I thought that something has indeed changed in Israel. And this is why... I wrote that new book. I, I, maybe I will give you an example, and it's easier to of what I was thinking about. Sure, thank you. The fir- the first book was on the issue of denial. How the Israeli are denying the reality of the Palestinians and what they do to them, and I there were there were. 15 chapters, 11 were on the Israeli society, three on the Palestinian society, and one together. But on the Palestinian society, I tried to analyze exactly the same thing. In what way the Palestinian also deny the reality of the Israeli, and they don't, don't understand and don't try to understand. And they are wrong many times in what they say. Anyway, I thought that there was, a, there was this point, which was for me the core of the issue, and it was denial. And the, the highest, the biggest denial that I ever heard 
is what Ben-Gurion, the head of the state of Israel, the first head of the state of Israel, not head of the state, of the government uh, of Israel, you know, instantly at the end of the war, in the 40s, he said, he gave the motto of the Israeli Hasbara propaganda. He said, we didn't expel a single Arab. They fed voluntarily. I've heard that. So, it was a complete lie. Of course. And you can read about that many, many, many books today, and it became obvious. No one can contest that. That there was an, a real ethnic cleansing. The yes. term didn't exist then, but today we would call that an ethnic cleansing. Yeah. Israel expelled 87% 87% of the population that was living, the, of the Arab population that was living on the territory she can, Israel controlled at the end of the war. So remained only 13% of that population. It was an ethnic cleansing. Yes. And so, what is say- the difference? The difference is that today, you will hear many, many Israelis, a lot of them, saying Ben-Gurion made a mistake. He should have expelled up to the last Palestinians, everybody. Oh, my. And today we wouldn't have any problem. It would be, he should have expelled all of them. Now, there is a huge difference between denial and the assumption of the crime. Uh-huh. It's not the same thing. When you deny, there is a reason. Because you, it, it says that, in fact, you know inside yourself that you have to deny the crime because if you admit what you did, well, you are a criminal. Yes. You, ad- you need to admit that you are a criminal. And that's the reason why Ben-Gurion said we never expel a single Arab. Because he wanted to preserve a self-image of Israel, which would be the right side of the conflict. That is a big change. When you go to Israel today and you hear so many people saying we should expel every one of them, it is the assumption of uh, of a crime and and it is a very diff- psychologically speaking yeah. it's a very different a- attitude and very I, different I'll, I'll tell you as as a, a jew myself it just it's i mean you talk about cognitive dissonance it just goes against you know our foundation our ethics of what we have stood for and it it does bother me greatly when people somehow think of the state of Israel and Jews as one in the same. And that's really harmful, I believe. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Uh, our guest today is uh, author Sylvain Cipel, a French-Jewish journalist uh, who has written a new book called The State of Israel versus the Jews, not just you know, against the Palestinians. Uh, it's so amazing, you know, to move from denial to defense. That's a 
big, big change, it seems, yes. it seems to me. And I, I have a story to tell about one Israeli person. It'll take a couple of minutes, and uh, bear with me, please. I was reading about Yuli Novak, a 40-year-old Israeli whose background and early career are as mainstream as they come. Yuli was raised on Israeli war stories and identified herself with the heroes of young of Israeli young adult fiction. After high school, she signed up for a five-year stint in the Israeli military as an Air Force operations officer. She lived in Tel Aviv with this pedigree and upper-crust early career experience. Yuli Novak was part of the Israeli elite and poised for leadership in Israeli society. She was executive mm -hmm. director of something called Breaking the Silence, which I guess yeah. the Israeli government was not familiar with. They thought it was about uh, uh, just uh, domestic abuse. Three years later, she and her organization of 15 young Israelis became the target of a wholesale campaign of delegitimization in the Israeli media. I know. Yes, I'm sure you do. I just want to tell the story for other listeners, too. It was spearheaded. The, the attack on her was spearheaded by senior government ministers, including calls for the kind of criminal investigations by the dreaded Shabak, secret services usually reserved for alleged terrorists. Yuli says the tributes to the recently passed Archbishop Desmond Tutu were a reminder of how South Africa's journey out of apartheid was served as an inspiration to Palestine solidarity activists. The state of Israel during the apartheid, armed South Africa when it was still practicing apartheid and was one of the world's few developed nations to maintain close ties with the white regime. And this is a quote from uh, Yuli. She says, I was told that the only way to live in the region was to be in perpetual war with everyone else. The fact that this is my home doesn't mean to say that this can't also be the home of someone else. I like that quote. Her main mm -hmm. takeaway is, Change that needs to happen in Israel cannot be brought about from within the current system. She says the political structure has to go. So, in Israel, how rare are the Yuli Novaks in Israel? Are they living in fear of, of the government that they have become the targets, not just the Palestinians? What about, you know, you know the old saying goes, you get four Jews together, you get five different opinions. What about the dissent in Israel? Where is that now? But what is the core of your question? What, the, it, what are... Are there, are there people in Israel now who are speaking up, who are saying, you know, are they, are they afraid now to criticize the government and to criticize the repression? Oh, no, I don't think so. Well, that's good. No, no, they're not. They're not. It's, it's very, it's Israel, from that point of view, Israel is a little bit like America, maybe. It's very liberal. You know, you can, you can say Everything in Israel, everything. You, during five decades, the leader of the Neture Karta, uh, you know what it is. Yeah. It is a, a, a very religious anti-Zionist sect. Yes. Uh, and and he, it's, its rabbi was burning an Israeli flag on the Day of Independence. Wow. In public. In the street, he was burning... Uh, an Israeli flag, and nothing never happened to him. Interesting. So, so Israel is very liberal, but the level of democracy is very low. Ah, 
is very low. So you can say everything, but altogether, the, the aspect of equality between, among people uh-huh. is extremely low. There was always a, a kind of, of uh, di- different acceptation of citizenship. And if, if you were a Jew or if you were not a Jew. And, uh, and now it's official. It is in the basic, what is called the basic laws of Israel. It has been voted by the Knesset. And there are two categories of citizens. Those who are Jewish and those who are not. And those who are not are 98% or 99% Palestinian. And they have right to vote, but some, that there are some other rights that they do not have. And this is apartheid. When you have two categories of, or three or four categories of, of civilians and citizens who are citizens of the same state but do not have the same rights. This is a pure definition of apartheid. Well, but they so have... If, if the I system- think if you ask me how the Israeli react, if you ask me how the Israeli react, you have everything. I would say what happened after the second intifada in 2000 and uh, started in 2001 and the Palestinian intifada that, that lost, right. politically speaking, in 2006, what happened was that the center of the Zionist trend, uh, the, the center disappeared. Ah. A lot of the Israeli society, many, 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 they, on the Palestinian issue, they went to the right and even to the far right. You can say 80%. Today, for example, the Labour Party, right. the old Labour Party, what remains of it, their positions are the positions of the Likud 20 years ago. Now, all those who didn't went on the, uh, to the right or to the colonial uh, mentality, they didn't stay in the same place. They went on the left. I remember 40 or 50 years ago when I was in Israel and lived there, you know, the people who were either anti-Zionist or, or put apart the religious aspect of anti-Zionist. But in the other, we were very, very, very few. But we were admitted and we could, we could say what we think. Today, the part of the, of the Israelis who are strongly against occupation, who are excellent militants, who are the number of people who are inside breaking the silence, or telling the organization of human rights in, the, in Israel, are much much, much more numerous than they were 40 years ago. Uh, The the number of people is higher, many, much higher than then, Uh but they are much more isolated than we were 40 years ago. You understand what I mean? I think so. It sounds like we have something like that here. The the, the center has disappeared, and the position between the 85% that are together 
that are, that are the government. They are 85% of the population is really in a position of complete opposition to any concession to the Palestinians. Right. And those who criticize Israeli politics are much more critics than they were 40 years ago. And the number are much, much higher, their number. But they still are a tiny minority. Interesting. You know, changes happen. And, you know, here in the uh, currently United States, uh, yeah. <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower, Republican, he, Eisenhower would today be considered far left. And, and the center has moved. It's, it's amazing how, I mean, I worked in the state legislature and there were lots of Republicans then, but they're nothing like they are now. And it's just become more and more intensified and, and less uh, appreciative. There's like, they've mm -hmm. rigid, rigidified. And I feel like it's happened uh, in Israel as well. But I do have a question. Yeah, exactly. People, people defend Israel saying, well, everybody's a citizen. Every vote is equal. We have a democracy. What's your response to that? Well, <laughs> this is exactly what I said previously. These are citizens of, uh, you are citizens at different levels. So Palestinians can vote. But for example, they cannot buy land. Yeah. Really? Yes, of course. Wow. It's, an, um, it's not, you, you can't think of that. You can't believe that. But this is true. Jeez. I'm speaking about citizens. Not only they cannot buy law because by by uh, ground because ground the the the, uh, the ground of Israel is owned by the KKL. You know what is the KKL? Uh, no. It's a Jewish fund. The Jewish fund is owning the ground. Now, it's not the state of law. It is their, uh, uh, their decisions that, and they are allowed to apply that. They can refuse someone to have land. And they system systematically refuse to Arabs to have some land in, in a systematical way. Wow. More than that. Jeez. 20 years ago, there was, uh, uh, <laughs> there was a, a, a trial at the Supreme Court of Israel. An Arab guy and his wife were candidates to buy a house in, in a new Israeli city. The mayor and the majority of its... Uh, 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 the body who is ruling the city, they decided to refuse him the right to buy a house. He went to trial, he lost. He went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court voted by a majority that he was right. And you cannot refuse on any basis because of race, of ethnicity, of gender, for no reason you can refuse to some someone 
to buy a house. And he won. But what was the result? Well, he won. But the, 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 the mayor refused to apply the decision of justice. Uh, and he never bought the house. Uh-huh. And this is daily attitude in Israel. So the, each time, it reminds me when the Israelis say, you know, the Palestinians refuse to vote the partition of Palestine. They are right to say that. The Palestinians refused. But since then, this is the only decision of the UN that the, <laughs> the Israelis accepted. Because since then, they refused all the decisions that say that occupation is illegal, etc., etc. And here is the same case, a similar case. So they have the, 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 <laughs> the right to vote. But this is what they have. That's it. And, and uh, they lost all the time territory inside Israel, too. It's, you cannot see that like you can see in the occupied territories. That there is a, a, a very strong policy of taking slowly, slowly all the land from, right. Arab, uh, from Arab hands. And, and you can, I can give you dozens of examples where Arab citizens have not the rights. And now it is in the law. It is in the basic law, the basic law of, of the nation state say, uh, adopted in 2018 right. says it is written that only the Jews have the right to self-determination. Other non-Jews, which means Palestinians, have no right. They don't. So both are citizens of the state, but one have a right that the other citizens do not. Once you imagine if in the U.S. there was a law, or in France, or anywhere else, a law saying some citizens have rights that others do not. Well, it has a name. Yeah. Yes. Apartheid is a name. Yes. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're speaking with author uh, Sylvain Cipel in Paris, who's got a new book titled The State of Israel Versus the Jews. And it's you know we're looking at how the state of Israel is is hurting uh, Judaism really, and you know part of my Jewish identity, which I I treasure, is a love for the law. There's and there's something called international law, which does you know doesn't necessarily have teeth to it. But what about Israel and respect for international law? Ben Gurion used to say, Um Shmum. Um means UN. So <laughs> it means, <laughs> in Hebrew, Um is UN. Right. So, Um Shmum means UN, Shmuen. Yeah, forget about it. <laughs> forget about that. <laughs> you know? And it meant, the meaning was forget about uh, international rights. Right. You know what? I tell you a story. Okay. Once, it was after 9-11, and I 
interview and 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 I there was Guantanamo and uh, Abu Ghraib, you know what happened with the with the and uh, uh, and then I went and I interview a former head of the Shin Bet uh-huh. in the in the nineties. And my first question to him was. You, Israel is in war, makes war to terrorism. Israel faces, says that it, what it faces is terrorism. My question is, can you both win terrorism and respect the international law? For example, avoid torture. You know what was his resp- his answer? No. He, uh, his answer was, well, I don't know the international law. I know the law of my state. It was a, I think it was very sincere. Uh-huh. Because this is the way the Israeli look at the international law. International law is good for them when, is, when it is in their f- favor. Yeah. If it's yeah. not in their favor, forget it. Well, Who cares yeah. about international law? We have our laws. Yes. And this is it. This is the real relationship to international law. There is no respect, per se, to international law. It's only a, uh, an issue of benefit. You know, if it benefits to you, it's, it's good. Like the decision to create uh, a state of Israel. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, when six months after there was another decision to allow to the Palestinian refugees to come back to their land, so you don't accept it and forget about that. I am reminded of, of, you know, back in the American Civil War, they, and ever since, they talk about states' rights, and it sounds rather similar. Under states' rights, uh, they would like to be able to treat you know, their people of color as they want, you know, take away women's rights to reproductive freedom. And no, it sounds similar. Go ahead. No, I mean, we, we need to say something else, I think, because what is the, when you say to Israelis, you don't respect international law, many of them will tell you, but who respects international law? Yeah, true. Why should we respect? Who respects? Did France respect uh, international law during the Algerian War? Did the U.S. respect international law in Vietnam or in Iraq, etc., etc.? So why should we be the only one not to respect? The reality is that there is a difference. There is not a single country that benefited from the veto of the U.S at the Security Council, like Israel, not in any other, no other country. And the explanation is, the fact is, that there is no country that so systematically reject international law. So I would say it's a complicated issue, but I know, I mean, if you think about Russia today, Mm -hmm. what's happening in Ukraine, you would say that the respect of the Russian for international law is quite low. Yes. But, but it's, it's not as systematic 
it's and it's not a, a, a systematic position like it is in Israel. It could be, it could happen, and and become uh, uh, such, but it is not yet. In Israel, it's obvious that they always need a, a v, an American veto, otherwise they would yeah. lose systematically. True. It brings up the question of uh, the the American uh, far right, the religious nationalists who. Uh, want to transform us from a republic to a religious nationalism have significant power and it seems to be growing within the Republican Party. And I wanted to ask about Jared Kushner, who was there, you know, very uh, actively moving the embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Are there real actual links with the white supremacist Trumpers here in the United States and with uh, people in Israel. You know who is Ron Dermer? What's the name? Ron Dermer was the previous ambassador, Israeli ambassador in Washington. Ah, don't know the name. Yeah, he was nominated by uh, Netanyahu. Several months ago, maybe six or eight months ago, he wrote an article in Israel, and he wrote, we need to understand that the link with the American jury is over, and it's not our interest to, to, to trust the American uh, jury. Our real allies are the nationalists, and all these, you know, Baptists and evangelists. Right, right, right. They are, and he said, it's not only an issue that Jews are only uh, 60, uh, 6.5 million and evangelists are 40 million or 45 million. The issue is that we agree with the evangelists and not with the American jury on most of the issues. When there was the bombing at Pittsburgh, you remember? Yes. The first thing that that guy Dermer said, forget about white supremacism. The main anti-Semitic issue is Islam. Mm. Even when supremacists do what a supremacist guy did what he did and killed 11 people, right. he would say, forget about that. Just Look at Islam, nothing else. So it's a manipulation of anti-Semitism, wow. a complete assimilation. But this man is extremely close to the white supremacists in the U.S. And a, 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 a whole part. You you remember uh, what's his name? Beck, this guy who oh, Glenn, Glenn Beck. Beck you yes. remember? Yeah, Glenn Beck. When I was correspondent of the Monde in the U.S., it was, I would say, 2010, 2011, something like that. He had a program on Fox News. Yeah. And one day he said horrible things, real anti-Semitic. Uh, 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 it was a pure anti-Semitism against George Soros. Uh-huh, yes. He said that George Soros, uh, he escaped the Nazis uh, and sent all his family to uh, to Treblinka. It was horrible. Soros was forty years old 
at the end of the war. Anyway, he remained in, uh, in Fox, Fox News, refused to fire him, mm-hmm. but they fired him after, uh, six months after that. So what did Beck? He went to, to have his image, you know, to renew his image. What did he do? He went to Israel. Well, he didn't went exactly to Israel. He went only to the occupied territories. Uh. And he met with the ultra-right religious settlers in the territories. And they loved him. And they said that he was a, a great guy. And they, these are the, you know, the, the maddest settlers. They are completely mad. And, and the, the level of their hate, not only against Palestinians, but you know, against other Jews, they are terrible. They are terrible. Anyway, hmm. it's interesting. Yeah. Because people like, like Dermer are closer to the mentality of Glenn Beck than to the traditional Jewish menta- uh, mood. And they are, they, they are pure uh, white supremacists. Yes, Abs- when, absolutely. You know, when you, you, you defend, you say, forget about the bombing by your white supremacists. The true issue is Islam. What is this? Yeah, that, I mean, you're talking Hello? about the, the real terrorism in the United States is from that far right. And those are the same yes. groups that are the biggest, biggest supporters of the state of Israel. They, they connect it yes. religiously with some kind of bizarre fascination with uh, what, the rapture. They expect, you know, it's, they're far more, you know, rubber stamp anything Israel does is, is good. Then, I mean, I suppose they're right. Uh, the link with American Jewry has become over. And I think that's a, I would think that's a big problem, but maybe, maybe not. And we're talking today on uh, uh, Keeping Democracy Alive about uh, a new book called uh, The State of Israel Versus the Jews. And our guest is uh, author Sylvain Cipel in Paris. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what's happened and how it's affecting world opinion of Judaism and, and Judaism itself. Um, and I find it interesting that the Israeli scientists, there's always some pretty good scientists in, in Israel and uh, technology as Excellent. well. Some of the spyware, the cyber surveillance invented in Israel, yes. is the security state now using it on dissident Jews in Israel and here in the U.S.? I've heard uh, yes, rumors right. to that effect. How to answer to that? Uh, I mean, Are they using it on dissident Jews in Israel and here in the U.S.? Yes, yes, they are, they are, they are. They started with Palestinians, of yeah, course. Of course. Because they had, uh, uh, you know, it was like an experiment. And you could, they could freely improve all their material, material and test all the time and test and test. Yeah. So they had the possibility to, to do that because if you develop uh, this kind of weapon, in the U.S. or in France or elsewhere, you cannot uh, hide, you cannot... You have one minute remaining. ...on the population, for example. If this is discovered, it will be a scandal. But when you have Palestinian territories, when you do exactly whatever you have in mind, whatever you think, you can do anything. 
and nothing will happen to you. So this is what happens. They started, and for years, for years, they developed the best, maybe one of the best, I would say, uh, uh, tool to, uh, for sp- cyber spying. And, and they are very efficient, extremely efficient. And I think that the issue of cyber spying is, uh, an, I, would, I wouldn't say the core, but quite clearly a very important issue in the agreements. We hear more and more about civilians in Israel now being defined as legitimate targets for use of violent state force. Has there there been an evolution away from military targets leading to this point? And talk about that, please. Yeah, I I wouldn't... It's hard to answer yes. Of course. I, I always have written that. When you start developing forbidden arms to control another people, one day you will start to use them to control your own people. Uh-huh. Why not? If you get used to that, why should you only spy the others? You would spy your own people. Every government will, will you know, yeah. it, it's hard to resist to the attraction of doing something that is, unlo- it's not legal, but it brings you yeah. so much security. So, so it started with, during years with the Palestinians, and slowly, slowly, it came to Israel. Now, when the COVID started in Israel, mm-hmm. it was the first country, and the, only, the first country that said, you know, Netanyahu asked the head of, Shin, of the Shin Bet to spy all the, uh, the Israeli phones, and without saying to the people that they are spying to, because, and to check the progression of the pandemic. It will help to check the, pand- the progression of the pandemic. There was an article by, by, uh, in the Haaret mm-hmm. by the retired high-ranked guy of the Shin Bet. He said, it's a problematic issue. Not because, because I don't trust the Shin Bet. They will not do foilistic. But I don't trust Netanyahu. He can use this uh-huh. cyber spying not to track the, the COVID, but to, to make it help his own re-election. Uh-huh. You understand? Oh, I do. And of course, when you, when you start, you know, it's... It's the same thing that violence in the territories. You know, generation of young Israeli soldiers used to go to the territories and to act in a very rude manner toward the Palestinians. It has an, an, a social impact uh-huh. on their attitudes when they finish the military of the way they look at people, you know, they, were, they got used to look at people like if they were animals. So one time, twice, three times, 
at the end of the day, you start believing that this is reality. Gosh, that's so... And you start also look at your own people like that. Mm. And it's so against everything I was taught in religious school, that, you know, might doesn't make right, that we're about equality and justice. Well, as you said, and again, the title of the book is The State of Israel versus the Jews. How are the... There's this wall, you know, throughout uh, it, it, throughout uh, the occupied territories, and it, it, it meanders all over the place from what I understand. How are Jews walling themselves in, really? I mean, we're, it, the idea is to, to wall the Palestinian so-called terrorists out. How are, are Jews hurting? How is Israel hurting the Jews now? Let's just wrap up with that. How Israel is yeah. looking at Jews? Yeah. How how well, is it hurting Jews? It's very. It's it's hard to to answer in two minutes. But uh, oh, because the attitude of uh, of Zionism in general toward uh, and and the Jews to support Israel was always that Jews that remain in the diaspora, I would say, at least make a mistake, or even worse. I mean, if something happened to them, it's their fault. They had to come to Israel if they right, wanted security. Right, right. And this is a mentality. Altogether, for decades, Israeli had uh, uh, needed the money of the diaspora. Yeah. They need it much less now, but they still need. They need uh, the, American, uh, the American support, and they need sure. APAC oh, to yeah. work at the Congress. So... The American three billion, three point eight billion every year will arrive mm-hmm. to Israel mm-hmm. in terms of arms. Okay, so, the, but the way they look at at the diaspora people is oh, is partly disdain. Yes, it is. And what I told you about Dermer, yeah. The, the former uh, Israeli ambassador. ambassador of Israel, it, it's symptomatic of a kind of Israeli. You know, they disdain the Jews, all these liberals, etc., hmm. etc. Et what they like is false, most of it. You know, what they like most is false and use of false. And they, you know, there is a, a Jewish uh, proverb in the, in the Torah that says that what, what doesn't go with force goes with intelligence. Yeah. What, wasn't, what doesn't work with force will work with intelligence. And the Israeli common sense changed that uh, sentence to another one, which is very symptomatic of what is Israel. And the sentence goes like that. What doesn't work with force will work with more force. Right. And this is absolutely typical of Israel. In that sense, it's, you know, Jews of the diaspora, at least in America, it's different in France, I would say, but at least in America, this is an explanation why more and more Jews do not abandon the support to Israel, but it takes some distance. Yes, starting to apply and, pressure. And more and more of the young Jews 
feel that Israel do not represent them. Yes. Well, it's not a good uh, prospect for the future. I, you know, there used to be talking. No, it's not. A two-state solution, that seems to have gone by the wayside. I Personally, I think it's inevitable that there'll be one state absolutely equal for all, but there's going to be a lot of bloodshed in between times. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure of that, but to me, uh, I hope you're right. <laughs> well, the book is titled The State of Israel vs. the Jews, and it's put out by The Other Press. Our, author, our guest today has been its author, uh, Sylvain Sipel. Thank you so much for being with us today. Very shedding a lot of light where it needs to go. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week, subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.